sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. So today I have a, a story to begin our, our, our message. Jim and Elizabeth Elliot were missionaries to the Alta Indians in Ecuador. One day, on January 6, 1956, while the five missionaries were yelling out welcome phrases across the river, three Indian girls, three Indians, two girls and one man emerged from the jungle. They were Alcas. The men welcomed them to their camp and showed them the airplane, yo-yos, and different kinds of food they had brought. On January 8, 1956, the missionaries decided to go and see if the Alcas would invite them to their village. It was Sunday, and they were going to hold a worship service on the beach. Suddenly, they saw a movement in the bushes and birds fly out of the trees. One of the men radioed their wives back at the mission base and said that a large group looked to be on their way and to be praying for a welcoming party. He promised to radio at 4.30 p.m. to let them know how it went. The radio was silent for hours. No message came. The wives came back at, to the base, tired, not, they, they, they tried not to worry. But eventually, a search and rescue party was sent out on foot to see if anything had happened to the missionaries. Upon arriving at the beach, they found the plane had been stripped of all its fabric and the wings were completely destroyed. Soon they found one, two, three, four bodies lying in the water with spears embedded on their backs. The fifth body was found later, which was Ed McCauley. The five missionaries had been killed in their attempt to reach the indigenous, indigenous tribe in Ecuador. The world mourned for the loss of these five missionaries. While others criticized them for their work, the wives grieved for their husbands. Though they were thankful that they had been obedient to the call of the Lord, many of the wives and families stayed in ministry. After Jim Elliott's death, Elizabeth decided to continue working among the Quincha for two more years. Two Alka women lived among them, including a woman named Diana, who had run away from the tribe, her family, uh, when, excuse me, who had run away from her tribe when her family was killed. She taught the Huao language to Ms. Elliott and to Nate Saint's sister, Rachel. During the next two years, Elizabeth prepared to go to the people that had killed her husband and share the gospel with them. In October 1958, Elizabeth Elliot, her three-year-old daughter, Valerie, and Rachel Saint went to live with the tribe that had killed their husband, father, and brother. Diana was able to create an opening for them to be welcome into the tribe. Elizabeth was, the Alcas, was with the Alcas for only two years, while Rachel stayed until she passed away 
on November 11, 1994. After moving to the village, Elizabeth began to teach the Alka Indians from the Bible. Her forgiveness and acceptance of the tribe are what led to them to accept Jesus Christ. She taught them to forgive fearlessly and to love tremendously, which forever transformed their way of life. One of the first men to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior was named Minkea, the man who speared Nate Saint and Anne McCauley. After receiving Christ, the tribe renamed itself Waroni, turning away from their Alka roots, which meant savage, to display a powerful message of transformation. If you want to see a movie based upon this story, it's called The End of the Spear. Think about this. What about you? How would you react if you were Elizabeth Elliot? Would you have been able to witness to the people who had savagely murdered someone you love? What about life today? Is there a particular type of person that you would have a problem sharing the gospel with? So as you look at today's message from Acts chapter 8, uh, we looked last week and uh, looking, been looking at the people that were involved in the spread of the gospel. The first person was Stephen. Now we're going to look at a person named Philip. And they were both found in Acts chapter 6 as servants. They were the ones that were waiting on tables. And Stephen and Philip says they were full of the Holy Spirit. And we'll find out both of them performed signs and wonders, and both of them preached the gospel. But today we're going to be focusing upon Philip going to Samaria. And we know from Acts 1.8, what does Jesus say, his last words to them? Where are they to go? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Samaria was particularly important because the Samaritans in the Jewish people's eyes were half-breeds. They were partly Israeli and partly other types of people. So when Israel was conquered in 721 BC, they left behind the poorest people, the Assyrians, and imported people of other ethnicities, and they intermarried. So these Israelis and these other people intermarried and that's how they became Samaritans. The Jews hated Samaritans so much that when they wanted to go to Galilee, which is where Jesus was from, which is in the northern part of Israel, Samaria would be right in the middle. I wish I had a map behind me, but Judea would be in the south, Samaria in the middle, and then the, would be Galilee. Jews hated Samaritans so much that rather than walking through the land of Samaria, they would go around up the river, Jordan River, and go totally around this area called Samaria. So they went out of their way to avoid them. They hated them that much. And so when we get here to uh, Acts chapter 8, we're looking at what's called the diaspora, those that were dispersed the Jews that were dispersed throughout the world. And Philip was uh, from outside of this area. So perhaps, it's, we don't know, 
But perhaps maybe those who are the diaspora, the Jews living outside of Palestine, may have had less prejudice. We don't know. But at least that's a possibility. The question is, why was Philip chosen to go to Samaria? We'll look later in the story and we'll see Peter and John also go to the Samaritans. But perhaps it's because of Philip being maybe perhaps less prejudiced to them. If so you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 8 and we'll pick up in verse 4. It says here in verses 4 through 8 first, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. So first of all, it's likely that he went to the capital city of Samaria, which is a place called Sebast, S-E-B-A-S-T-E. It would have been right near Mount Gerizim, which was the mount where they worshipped uh, their god. Now, the Samaritans were kind of half into Jewish religion and half into other types of religion. So they had a belief in God, and Mount Gerizim is actually one of the mountains when the Israelites first came into the promised land, they had, a, a, Moses said, on one mount you give blessings, on another mount you'll give curses. That was Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim that were there. So this Mount Gerizim was a place that was worshipped. And we know from Jesus and the woman at the well uh, that, you know, that was the, what she said. We worship a God here on Mount Gerizim. And also at the woman at the well, she said, we know one is coming. In their tradition, they called the Messiah the Tehab, T-E-H-A-B. So they were looking for a Messiah. They kind of knew about the Jewish religion, and they worshipped God on this mount. So perhaps they were ripe for the harvest. And so when Philip came, it says, first of all, in verse uh, four, it says that those who were scattered went about preaching. It's interesting, the word there, though, in verse 5, says Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Proclaim means to announce. It means you have an important announcement. And we see that when Jesus was born, what did it say? The angel announced Jesus has been born. And that's the idea of proclaiming. It says, like you're saying, I have something important to say. Listen to what I have to say. And so it's different than preaching. It's saying I have an announcement. And his announcement here is that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what he went about proclaiming to them. So he is proclaiming. He may have had a knowledge that they were looking for a Messiah, which they called the Tehab, and announced here is the one, the Messiah, are you to have. Here is the one. His name is Jesus. And he did signs and wonders amongst them. And it says they were converted and they became followers. And it says here that there was great joy. 
And I think, first of all, the great joy was that they had now salvation. Their to have had been announced to them, Jesus Christ. So their joy was now they had their fulfillment of a Messiah. And then secondly, that there were people healed as a result. So that there was great joy amongst them in that city. And so as we see here, the application as we get here from these verses is that since the gospel is for all peoples, we should be building bridges to people who are not like ourselves, not walls. And I think unfortunately that's true today, even amongst Christians, that sometimes we build walls and we should be building bridges, just like Philip going to people that in his mind may have been half-breeds. And so he went there to explain the gospel. And so that's our part of our mission, is to build bridges to those who are different than us. Then let's look at verses 9 through 13, which has an interesting story that starts here about a man named Simon, the magician. So it says here in verse 9, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed people of the Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. But when they believed, Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So we're introduced to this person here called Simon, the great one, the magician, and everybody in that city, probably the capital city, all the way from the poorest to the richest, were amazed by all the magic that he had done. And back in that days, magic was practiced not just by pagans, but also by Jews. There were Jews that practiced magic. And it involved things such as incantations and blessings and cursings and uh, things like that. And they claimed to foretell the future. And so there was a lot of different types of magic, but it was basically the use of things like amulets, things that you wore, it, uh, wore to protect you from things. And that's where the Jews actually had amulets, and, and they were not the only ones. There were uh, things like the Assyrians and Egyptians that had amulets, but the Jews did also have their little uh, uh, like pieces of jewelry that they would wear that believed that they protected them from evil spirits. So Simon was really impressed by this message. As we'll see in the next little few verses, there's some doubt. Did he really believe? It says he believed and he was baptized. But we're going to look at his motivation here in the next few verses. But just think for a minute. Just because you say that you believe and you've been dunked in the baptistry, which is up here, you know, just because you've been dunked in the baptistry, and you're following somebody who's preaching the right thing, really, the question is, have you truly been saved? 
And if you are truly saved, there should be some transformation in your life. And so that would be the application here, is that genuine faith will lead to transformation in your life. So let's look at these next few verses because they get very interesting in looking at, at this person, Simon. So it says here, starting in verse 14, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through delaying the hands, the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone in whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could have obtained the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered and said, Pray for me, the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now there's a lot of interesting things in these verses, so we'll take it step by step and go through these and hopefully understand what's being talked about here. So the first question is, why did Peter and John feel like they had to come down? And by the way, whenever you see in the, in the Bible it says they came down from Jerusalem, it's because Jerusalem was on a hill. So any direction you went was downhill uh, from Jerusalem. So when it says they came down, they literally came down from Jerusalem. Well, it's because they had authority. When Jesus appointed the 12 apostles, he gave them a certain authority to establish the early church. So as authority leaders, they came down to investigate. Every, it would be like here at FIBC if we planted a mission church and we wanted to check out that mission church, the senior pastor, lead pastor, assistant pastor should have the authority to go and see if what that church that we planted is doing. We would do the same thing today, in other words. So they were showing their authority by going down to investigate, to hear what had happened. So next question is why did Peter and John have to lay hands on these believers to receive the Holy Spirit? This is a very important question. Again, it goes to this idea of authority. And so that they received the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands is a unique case here in the book of Acts. We don't see this elsewhere up to this point in the gospel. Remember on the day of Pentecost, what? The Holy Spirit came upon the believers and they spoke in other languages and people heard those languages being spoken. This is the first recording here in the book of Acts. It's unique 
that somebody had to lay hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit. So the idea here could be is let's say if the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them when Philip preached them, they being, quote, half-breeds in the minds of the Jews could say, hey, we've received the Holy Spirit. We worship God here in Mount Gerizim. We can establish our own religion that will be separate and we'll be just fine. We'll be Samaritan believers and you can be Jewish believers. I think the reason that they waited for Peter and John had been conferred upon them the same blessing as the Jews had received. Therefore, now they're not separate, they're included. That's what God wants. He wants one body where everybody is included. And that's why he said to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world is so that we're all included. And you look around here in our church, I see people from all over. I see people from Brazil, from Romania, from Oregon, you know, from all over, from Hungary, from Bulgaria, from Indonesia. We're all included here today. And I think that's why that, that, that Peter and John went to Samaria was to confer that we are now one body. You are no longer separate from us. We may have thought of you as half-breeds in the past. We're now accepting you into the body of Christ. So that's why Peter and John, I believe, had to lay hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit. The second or the third question that I actually have here is, is how, did the, how did the people know that the believers had received the Holy Spirit? Was there an outward manifestation like speaking in tongues. Now it's not mentioned here, but obviously it was something that they observed, that they saw something. So you could speculate and say, yes, there was an outward manifestation. Perhaps they did speak in tongues, perhaps they prophesied, or perhaps both. But somehow they knew that they had received the Holy Spirit like in Acts chapter 2, we know that the Holy Spirit fell upon them. They spoke in tongues. We'll also see later in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius that he spoke in tongues in his family. And in Acts chapter 19, there was a group of disciples that received the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Now, this does not mean that this is a normative experience for everybody who receives the Holy Spirit. Again, the book of Acts is a historical book. And when you look at historical books, you have to remember they're describing what happened and not saying that that behavior is normative. And so when we look at topics like speaking in tongues, we have to look to doctrinal books. And I think in theology they call them didactic or some word like that. But, you know, it, it means teaching passages doctrinal books. And the best way to look at speaking in tongues in terms of teaching passages is to look at 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. They have the most extensive teaching about speaking in tongues, and especially chapter 14 deals a lot with how you deal with speaking in tongues in the church. 
But what it does not describe in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 is how people receive the gift of speaking. All it really says in chapter 12 is that the Holy Spirit gives gifts as he wills. And therefore today, if the Holy Spirit wants to give the gift of speaking in tongues, so be it. Who am I to say to God, no, you can't empower a believer to speak in tongues? So we have to still say that tongues could be valid for today because the Holy Spirit still could give that gift if he wills. So we have to look at this passage here in light of that, what we have been taught in other places, and conclude that we don't know that uh, if they definitely spoke in tongues when they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it is a possibility because it says they saw, they understood that the Holy Spirit had been received by those that Peter and John laid their hands on. So I hope that that's clear. Then, next question. Did Simon have a true conversion experience? We read previously, it says he was believed, and then he was baptized, he followed Philip. But then, his true character kind of comes out. He says, I want that same power. And he offered money. And one of the things about the char characteristic of magicians of that day is that you offered money for the magician to do something for you. It's just like today if you want to go to a fortune teller at a fair and there's that lady in the tent and with the tarot cards and all that. You pay some money. And so it was common back then to pay somebody to tell the future for you. And so they exchanged money for favors. I want you to listen. I read this already, but I want you to listen to other two other paraphrases of these verses. First of all, there's a person named J.B. Phillips, and he wrote a, excuse me, a paraphrase of the New Testament. Listen to this, verses 20 to 23 in J.B. Phillips' translation, or paraphrase. But Peter said to him, To hell with you and your money. How dare you think you could buy the gift of God? You have no share or place in this ministry, for your heart is not honest before God. All you can do now is repent of the wickedness of yours and pray earnestly to God that the evil intention of your heart may be forgiven. For I can see inside you, and I see a man bitter with jealousy and bound with his own sin. Listen to what the message says. The message says, Peter said, to hell with you and your money, and you along with it. Why, that's unthinkable, trying to buy God's gift. You will never be a part of what God is doing by striking bargains and offering bribes. Change your ways, and now, ask the master to forgive you for trying to use God to make money. I can see this is old habit with you. You reek with money lust. Do those words shock you? I hope so. Have you ever wanted to say to hell to somebody? Or perhaps you have. It's pretty strong language, isn't it, to, to say that? And I think that's what we have to get, the impact of what Peter and John is saying to Simon. You have done something very serious. You are showing your true heart. 
your heart is really not right with God, that you have not truly repented, you're relying upon your old ways. And so we have to see here that perhaps that he was not truly a believer, even though he said he believed, even though he was baptized, even though he began to follow, he really didn't show the evidence that he had been transformed. He was going back to his old ways and saying, I am a magician, I'm going to offer you money, I want to still impress people. Because remember, when we first looked at Simon, it says he was all about trickery and deceiving all the way from the poorest people to the richest people in the city. And perhaps that pride came to him and said, I want to be great again. I want that power to impress people. And so we have to look at this. Historically, there are outside Bible sources that label Simon as the first heretic. And so perhaps that gives more credence that early believers considered him a heretic that perhaps then we should also consider him a heretic, a person that did not truly believe and just pretended to believe. And then we really have to look at this and wonder about his, his statement. Let's look here again very closely. I, I usually read here from the English Standard Version. Let's look at verse, verse 24, his response. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. This is like a person who gets caught doing something wrong and is saying, all types of relationships, but he's not asking, not saying the right thing. He's not saying, I'm sorry, I did this, I'm wrong. You don't see that. He says, pray that this bad thing will not come upon me. I think this is really telling of the, his heart condition that he doesn't say, forgive me. He says, don't let the consequences fall upon me. So the application here is that the work of the Holy Spirit should bring us to repentance and is necessary for ongoing growth towards Christ-like maturity. In other words, when we are truly repentant, like David when he blew it with Bathsheba, his response was, Lord, forgive me. He did something wrong and he admitted it, he owned up to it. And so therefore God called him a person after his own heart, after God's own heart. We don't see that in Simon. And so we too, when we are confronted with sin in our lives, need to be repentant so that we don't have the consequences. We may have, like David had consequences, the child that Bathsheba bore died. But you know that the consequences are not long-lasting, that forgiveness can bring change into our lives. And that should be our goal we should be repentant, and we don't see that here in Simon. The last verse that we'll look at in today's message is verse 25, and it says, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. 
And of course, the they there in verse 25 is Peter and John that had come down from Jerusalem. They now went out and proclaimed the gospel to other villages on their way back to Jerusalem. So they were traveling through Samaria. Remember I mentioned in the beginning, Jews would go around Samaria because they hated them so much. Well, if they are preaching in the villages, obviously they were going through Samaria to preach the gospel. And so that they were preaching the gospel says to many villages of Samaritans. In other words, they had to get over their prejudice. Remember I asked you in the beginning, who would you find difficult to go to and preach the gospel? I think that's a good question for us to kind of think about. That, you know, in their minds, the Samaritans would have been difficult to be, be preached to, to claim the gospel. Who would we find difficult? So the application here, in obedience to the Great Commission, the disciples of Christ preach the gospel as they go and wherever they go. And that's us. We are disciples. We are just followers of Christ. Therefore, we have an obligation that wherever we go, we should be preaching, proclaiming the gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so it doesn't matter what background that, that person that comes from. It may be a person that in your homeland you have difficulties with. But if God has brought them across your path, it is our obligation to share the gospel with them. So just to summarize, first of all, we looked at Philip going to Samaria in verses 4 through 8. The application was there was, since the gospel is for all people, we should be building bridges to people who are not like ourselves. We should not be building walls. Secondly, we looked at uh, Peter and, and uh, excuse me, Simon the sorcerer, and the application in those verses 9 through 13 was that a genuine saving faith will be proven by a personal transformation in your life. Then thirdly, we looked at Peter and John going to Samaria in verses 14 through 24. And the application there is that the work of the Holy Spirit brings us to repentance and is necessary for the ongoing growth towards Christ-like maturity. Then fourthly is the verse 25 where the apostles preached in Samaria. And again, the application is in obedience to the Great Commission we as the disciples of Christ preach the gospel as we go and wherever we go. So as we look at this passage of scripture today, the major point, you can get lost in all these details about Simon, the sorcerer. You can get lost in details about speaking in tongues. You get lost in details about what Simon really said. The main point of today's message is that the gospel went to Samaria. And we need to keep that in mind and not get sidetracked to the other things that happen in this passage. They're important, but the main thing is that in obedience to what Jesus said in Acts 1.8, he said that we are to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth to be witnesses to all those places. And this is the first recording of people going from Jerusalem to Samaria, to those half-breeds in their mind. And the gospel came to them, and God now united them together. That's the main emphasis, I think, here. And so now let's pray, and we'll close for today. 
Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you for the, today. And Lord, we thank you that we need to finish the task, God, that there are many people out there today who still need to know you as Lord and Savior. They need to have proclaimed to them that Jesus Christ died, buried, and rose again, and in him and in his name only there is forgiveness of sins. Help us to be obedient to the Great Commission, God, even to those that we may have trouble with, Lord. Help us, Lord, to build bridges and to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.